0: Almighty God, you are the upholder and sustainer, the creator, the God of all providence. We acknowledge, Father, that apart from your right hand, nothing can happen. So this morning, we turn our hearts to you and we ask that your spirit will so come this morning in the midst of this congregation that you may quicken our hearts to be sensitive and careful in the hearing of your word. Grant, Father, that this hearing of your word will produce faith and repentance. I ask, Father, that you will so fill me with your spirit that I will speak with boldness and clarity that your word will become prominent and I will not. Father, I ask this morning that your spirit will root out and expose sin, pride, arrogance, the attempt to sustain ourselves and uphold our own worlds. Help us see, Father, the great terror in that and turn us instead to lean on and to trust in the almighty hand of God to keep us to guard us and to carry us home. We ask, Father, that you'll do these things because we confess we do not even want them in our own hearts apart from your stirring. And so, Father, we ask that you will do this for your glory, for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Article chapter Article eleven in our Confession of Faith is on the perseverance of saints. We believe that such only are real believers as endure unto the end, that their preserving attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. That a special providence watches over their welfare. And they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Now I find it interesting that the quintessential text for the Wesleyan slash Arminian to go to, to deny that doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, is where we are this morning. In chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. And in God's amazing providence, we sing our last song, which was written by John Wesley. It's just how God works. Isn't that amazing? This text is one that is of a handful of New Testament texts that most would say is the most difficult to handle. So I want to help you this morning by saying that um, I'm going to... Uh, approach this text seek to be faithful to it and i ask that you will uh, lean in with me and help uh, to understand and to, to to stay close to what we're saying and stay close to what is being said so that we can understand this together and on the other side hopefully prayerfully see our need to come to christ that much more have you ever had one of those discussions with maybe a loved one or a mentor or maybe even a, a father figure when all the fun and games are set aside and they want to warn you of the dangers that reside? I remember that discussion as a, as a young man when I felt the call into ministry. Uh, the pastor of myself and Ashley, Pastor Roy Porter, was my mentor. And I, I don't remember the place or a lot of the details of the entire conversation. But I remember it became blood earnest for a few moments. And he was warning me that in the ministry, there are two great dangers, two things that I need to be very careful concerning. And he warned me to make sure that I was a man who was above reproach in two particular areas, concerning the area of of women, concerning the, the area of money, to do everything I could to stay as far away from those two dangers in the ministry because those will, will demise your ministry. And, and I appreciate so much his, his counsel in that regard to, as I've seen friends and other colleagues of pastors who have fallen in those two areas and the incredible detriment that has been to the church. I don't remember a whole lot, as I said, about that conversation, but I do remember the earnestness of it. The fact that it wasn't—he wasn't just in passing telling me this, but we—it it was a special, unique time when he was instructing me and caring for me. We've all had those times from loved ones who may be doing something, but then become earnest and warn you of a particular danger that may be ahead in a particular area in your life or in your calling. That's what this pastor is doing for us this morning in our text. This is not a passage this morning that's going to. Um, take us to the heights of heaven. It is that time when the pastor has turned, and after being a means of encouragement for so many chapters now, he's turning with uh, blood earnestness and saying, there is a warning that is of immense importance, and he is being very earnest and careful here. So this morning I have to confess that this message, because this text is weighty, this message is going to be weighty this morning. Let's look at what our text speaks of this morning, specifically in verse 4. Notice with me, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. That's, that's amazing, isn't it? That's, a, that's a, an amazing, weighty truth this morning. Well, this is one of, five, one of five warnings that this pastor gives to his congregation. The first one, as I spoke of a couple of weeks ago, is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And it's a warning against ignorance of them simply denying the information of who Jesus is and what he has done. The second warning was in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, and it was a warning of unbelief. And what we find is, as you can see here in our worship journal on page 3, the outline, we've been in this warning number 3 for a while, for the last two weeks at least. And it's a warning number 3, it's a warning of immaturity. Immaturity. What is the end of a continual habitual Immaturity. Well, this pastor fears, and I fear for us, that if we're not growing in maturity, the end could very well be that we would fall away. And as we can see, the consequences are amazing. And what we note as well is that in each one of these warnings, and I want to make note of this, and I'm going to come back to it at the end of the message, each one of these warnings is in relationship to the Old Testament. This pastor, because this congregation of Hebrews or Jews, are familiar with their Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and specifically the event of the exodus, of them coming out of Egypt and them wandering in the wilderness and not going into the promised land, this pastor is cueing to them and saying, listen, you are no better than they are, and if they fell in the wilderness, what's the likelihood that you could fall as opposed to pursuing maturity in Christ?" And so these warnings are warnings of saying the, the, the people of God in the Old Testament, specifically those who came out and were coming out of Egypt in the Exodus and wandering in the wilderness, they fell in the wilderness. Don't think of yourselves as better than they or that this, it's very unlikely that that can even happen to you. Be very careful. And he warns them concerning their ignorance in chapter 2, unbelief in chapter 3, and now in 5 and 6. Their immaturity, and he's keying that to this Old Testament people, and saying that this is very important for us to understand. Well, I want us to see this morning the um, the danger of this immaturity, and I want us to see it in two particular points. Two particular points. The two points are these: verses four through six, the peril of falling away, the peril of falling away. And point number two, the picture of falling away, the peril of falling away and the picture of falling away. Now, um, I'll confess that the first point is going to be the brunt of the message this morning. So we're going to spend a lot more time there. We're going to be dealing with that specifically. If you notice verses four through six and point number one, the peril of falling away, you look through verses four through six, that is one long sentence. There's no There's no stops in the midst of that. It's one long sentence, verses 4 through 6. And so this morning, I want us to uh, unravel this text just a little bit for us to understand a little bit better of what's being spoken of this morning. First, I want us to note the peril of falling away, and I want to ask this question, which is the question for this text. Who is being spoken of in this text? Who are the people being spoken of in this text? Well, it falls into generally two groups. There's all kinds of different translations, but generally, broadly, it falls into two groups. The first are those who believe that this group, verses 4 through 6, are people who have genuinely believed and genuinely trusted in Christ. And they are genuine, bona fide believers, born again. And that what happens in our text is that they fall away and that they lose their salvation. That's typically what I refer to as the... uh, Most would understand in the way of terminology... The Westland slash Arminian understanding of that. It is not what I believe or we as a congregation affirm. That one can lose their salvation. But that's what many would say concerning this text. And this, quite honestly, is the quintessential text that they would go to. So you may want to take some notes and understand this a little better... As we go through it this morning. The second position which is the position that we hold to as a congregation, are those who, we, we understand these people that are being spoken of here, as those who may have made a profession of faith, said that they were believers. They may even, and quite possibly are, within the midst of the congregation themselves, and yet they are false professors. They are false believers. They never genuinely believed to begin with. And yet they are in the midst of God's people. They're in the midst of God's people. And so they are not, in fact, genuine believers. And indeed, they have proved themselves in that way. Now the test this morning, I guess for me, is to show that from the text, isn't it? That's what I've got to do. And so let's take a look and notice our text this morning. And I want us to understand it. First, in relationship to what precedes it. Verses 1 through 3, this pastor is encouraging his congregation to press on to maturity. We see that in verses 1 through 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and the instructions about washings and laying on of hands. Verse 3, and this we will do. We will press on to maturity How? By what means? By what source? Verse 3, And this we will do if God permits. Remember that last week as we looked at that? Only if God permits will we press on in maturity. And then he goes on, our pastor does, in verses 4 through 6, and he shows them the peril of what will happen if they do not press on in maturity and continue. That's why we have the word for there in verse 4, It says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. First is that verses 4 through 8 are interesting because nowhere in those verses does he use the personal pronoun we or us. And that's interesting because in verse 3 he says, and this we will do if God permits. He includes himself as a pastor. Verse 9 he says, though we speak in this way, Yet in your case beloved we feel sure of better things. He's back at himself. This particular group of texts verses 4 through 8 seems to be a group that's outside of what who the pastor thinks he is in. And he speaks of this particular group in this way. It says in verse 4, "In the case of those, in a particular case, there are those who are in the midst of our congregation. In this case, in this instance, there's a particular group of people that's in our midst. That's not part of the pastor. He doesn't include himself, we or us, in any of these verses, verses 4 through 8. He's saying there's a particular case. There's those who are in our midst who, according to this, have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit. Notice that word once. Actually can, it is actually connected to all the different, the all uh, four of the blessings that we're going to see in just a minute as he describes these blessings of these people who have been here in this, in this particular case of people, but also that these things that are happening to them, these blessings, this being enlightened, this tasting of the heavenly gift, this sharing in the Holy Spirit, it says these things have only happened once in their life. And that word speaks of the fact that it's not a continuing thing, but in fact it's a particular thing. Something that's happened only once. So for at least in understanding the context of our passage, we see that, this pastor is speaking of a particular people, not everybody in the congregation. So for that for those two reasons, as we begin, I want to say, for those couple of reasons, as I look at the text, it seems that he's speaking of a, 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 a number of people that's in his congregation that he's unsure of and doesn't even know the faces of who they are. But says these people are potential apostates. People who could potentially Apostatized, to go away, to fall away from the faith. And it was among the number that were within those who he was preaching to. He was warning his congregation. And he speaks of these people, and it says, In the case of those people, they have four particular blessings that's ascribed to them. And this is where the real difficulty comes from. Because in every one of these four blessings that we see in verses 4 and 5, these blessings are quintessential blessings of those who are, in fact, saved. We would see things like being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, sharing in the Holy Spirit, tasting the goodness of the Word of God. These are uh, markers or indicators, blessings of those who are, indeed, saved. But it's interesting that he places qualifiers... On those who are enlightened, those who have tasted, who who have this heavenly gift, those who have this Holy Spirit encounter. He's placing qualifiers around that. So let's look at these four blessings real quickly. The first blessing, the first blessing of these people is that they have once been enlightened, once been enlightened. This understanding of enlightenment isn't uh, probably best understood today The understanding of enlightenment today is an understanding of this mystical experience where somebody can really honestly rattle off anything they want and contribute it to God and nobody can disagree with them. That's what we understand about enlightenment today. During this time, it was a very different thing. Those who had been enlightened were those who actually had gone through a system of teaching within the church. They had gone through something similar to what we understand as a catechism, a series of questions and answers. At very least, they would have memorized the Apostles' Creed. This is the system of training that they would have gone through prior to being baptized. And this understanding was that they were, at one point in time, enlightened, meaning they were trained in the basics of the faith. And so these people that's being spoken of here had once been enlightened. They had been trained. They had been baptized quite possibly. Even though that isn't referenced particularly here, we find that in extra-biblical literature. We find as well that this word for enlightened is used in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. And it says, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggling and suffering. It speaks of a time that that person was, in the past, enlightened or trained, and this was before that they entered into the body of believers and became a genuine believer. These people that the pastor is concerned about are those who have been enlightened or trained and brought into the communion of the body of believers. Just like all the genuine and true believers, I believe. So they're mixed in there. The second blessing we see here is that not only were they enlightened, once enlightened it says, but in verse 4 it goes on it says, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Who have tasted the heavenly gift. Misunderstanding of tasted is not an understanding of consuming or devouring. There's another whole word for the idea of eating something or taking it in. This understanding of tasting, specifically in relationship to this text and many others, is the idea of experiencing or being exposed to something. So in this case, what is being said is that these people have been experienced or exposed to this heavenly gift. Notice it's singular. Everywhere this word gift occurs in the New Testament, the idea is typically it's actually in a phrase called the gift of God, and it means salvation. Meaning that these people were experienced and exposed to salvation. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? If they were a part of the body of believers, they were around those who were saved, they had experienced and been exposed to those things which were, in fact, salvation, the gift of God, the heavenly gift as it speaks of here. We know that this understanding of tasted doesn't mean um, a permanent state, not given over to a permanent state of something, because we know that this very word was actually used just previously. If you want to turn there, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 uses this word, and it says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might, there's the word, taste death for everyone. This understanding specifically from that text, and there's others, seemed to indicate that Jesus himself, we would not say that Jesus in fact was permanently given over to death. Would we say that? Not at all. Did he taste death? It's an interesting choice of words. Yes, he was, Jesus knew what death was like. He was experienced with it. He was exposed to death. Was he permanently given over to that death? Was he committed to that death wholeheartedly and fully and completely in the sense that he stayed dead? Not at all. And that's exactly what the Hebrews author was trying to say in chapter 2. And then we take that meaning and move it over and say that this could very well be the understanding of one who has been exposed or experienced with this heavenly gift, which is salvation, and everybody there that was genuinely saved in that congregation and in this one is either um, partaking in that heavenly gift, salvation, or simply tasting or being exposed and experienced to that heavenly gift, which is salvation, which is around us. The third blessing that we see here, and this is honestly the part that, that most people say, but it says right here that they shared in the Holy Spirit. There's no way that can be an unregenerate person, right? That's what everybody says. And I would agree, this is the... Most difficult of the points. But I will say as well that the pastor was intentionally using these phrases to say that these people that are going to be apostate, that are going to move away from the faith, they're going to fall away, they look just like us, guys. All of us have been enlightened, have been tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit. They look all just like us. There's no distinguishing factor from them except for one, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. They were were blessed in this way, they shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, I must confess, this word for sharing does have uh, it has a broad sense of meanings. And there are some who would like to say that this word for sharing speaks of a very close association with someone. And we find many texts that actually speak of that, that this word for sharing speaks of one who has a close association. But we also find just as many texts with this word for the word sharing that actually speaks of a broad or more loose understanding of sharing. One of those... Obviously, I'm going to mention those because I believe it fits here. This broad or loose understanding of the word for sharing is in the word for, in Luke chapter 5, verses 6 through 7. You may just want to write that down and look at it later. Jesus and his disciples are fishing, and they are trying to haul in fish, and they can't get these fish in. And so it says, a neighboring boat, which was partnering them, it says in the text. It says, they signal to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. This word for partner is the word here that we have for share. And it's the idea of a guy who's in a boat completely different than theirs next to them that came over and helped them pull in the fish. And so we see, and there's other cases, Ephesians 5, verses 6 through 7 speaks of this understanding of a loose association. At any rate, I believe that here what's being spoken of is specifically those who are in the congregation and are receiving the benefits of the Holy Spirit and yet are not regenerate. Now, how can that happen? Well, we most often think of the Holy Spirit in relationship to those who are regenerate, don't we? That makes sense. That's what we read in Scripture most often. When we see the Holy Spirit, then He's working in the lives of people that are saved, that are, have that are been born again. But I think we forget sometimes that the Holy Spirit works all over the Bible among those who aren't saved. We can't limit the Holy Spirit to only working within those who are regenerate. In fact, what we find is that the spiritual... Uh, fruits of the Spirit, love, kindness, joy, peace, the spiritual gifts that God has given to us, all of these are not just for us to share among our body of believers, but we're supposed to show love, kindness, joy, these fruits of the Spirit to those who are in the body of believers as well as those outside of the body of believers. And so our gifts of the Spirit and our, and our fruits of the Spirit are demonstrated to those who are not saved in such a way as to exemplify and to show Christ. Now, in that way, I believe these people are sharing in the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you say, uh, you're reaching there. It sounds like you're trying to make a point. I, I realize that. I realize that. But let's look at everything instead of just each individual point, okay? I'm hoping that by the end of this, we can see that though there are some points where I, I honestly, even in this one, uh, seems, like, seems like you're kind of trying to make that one work. I believe overall in our text, what the pastor is saying, if we look at the context, is so clear that it makes all the other pieces fall in place. So let's, let's keep on uh, with the study and we'll, we'll look through. The fourth and last of the blessings is in verse 5. And this fourth and last blessing is this. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, again, this is the same word for tasted, the idea of experienced or been exposed to. And here we would say that these people, though they may be unregenerate, they've been coming to church. They've been listening to the preaching of the word. They've even maybe even taken some of the truths of God's word and began applying them to their own lives and to the lives of their and that are around them and in their marriages and in other places. And you know what's happened? They've benefited from that. They've they've taken the word of God and they've seen, according to this, they've tasted or experienced or been exposed to the goodness of the word of God being preached. And they've they've seen that. And the congregation has seen that in their lives. They've seen that there's been some real evidence of of moving in the right direction among that person. And so they've, they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. Not only that, but they've tasted of the powers of the age to come. The idea here is that they have seen their brothers and sisters in Christ go through incredible times of turmoil and suffering. And because their hope wasn't in this world but in the one to come, they've seen how those people have pushed through. And they've been in awe of how they can just keep going. They've seen how God has healed people that they've prayed for. They've seen how God has worked miracles to orchestrate situations and circumstances in people's lives in such a way as there's no way to explain it other than God was working in that way. You see, these people have tasted or experienced or been exposed to the powers of the age to come. They've been exposed to this group of people who are believers who have hoped in the things to come instead of the things of this world, and they're in all of that. They've been in the midst of these people. So these are the four blessings that characterize these people. They have once been enlightened. They have once tasted the heavenly gift. They have once shared in the Holy Spirit. They have once tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Verse 6. And then have fallen away. And then have fallen away. Now, this is not a person who has sinned. This is not a person who has um, has fallen into a particular sin of any kind of other genre. The idea here is that these people have walked away from the faith. This particular idea here of falling away is the idea of being an apostate. They have they have been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have done all these things that are wonderful, amazing blessings from God. They've experienced all these things. They've been exposed to so many fruits and evidences of salvation. They've been in our midst, and we've even seen some things in their life. And lo and behold, out of nowhere, they've fallen away. They left the faith. They denounced it. They've walked away. They have desired to leave that which they considered precious, which was Christ, and to walk away from the church and the things of God. Now that's amazing, isn't it? Well, it's not really. Because you and I all know it. We've seen that, haven't we? We know that exists. We have family (laughs) that have done that. And so that isn't as shocking as sometimes we may like to think it is. And honestly, that's not the point of the pastor here. That wasn't the point for the pastor here. Because honestly, everybody and anybody of believers throughout the centuries knows that there are those who go out from us, right? First John chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, right? We know that. Do you know what the point of this pastor is? It's the shocking, honestly, blunt, bowling you over next statement, which answers this question, what is the result of this falling away? What is the result of the falling away? Now, we've, we've heard all kinds of messages about people who shouldn't fall away and go away from God and, and pursue other things and toy with the things of God and decide to kind of wander off and go somewhere else and never come back to the things of God. We've heard all of those messages before. But I want the weight of God's Word to fall on us now because I believe that's exactly what the pastor wanted from his congregation. He loved them enough to be blood-earnest and to say, verse 6, and then have fallen away. And here's our our verse. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible... It is impossible for them to be restored again to repentance. Right now is when you're expecting me to say, okay, but it doesn't mean that. Friends, exegete it any way you want to. What does it say? I think that's the point the pastor was trying to make. He loved him enough to say, the price is high. If you walk away from this, it's not just, I'm going to go and then I'll come back if I need to, or I can wander around and live my own life. I can accept Christ as a 12-year-old, and then I'm going to sow my wild oats when I'm 17, 18, go to college, and then I can come back whenever I want. I think that's exactly what this pastor is trying to say. He's saying that if you... Apostate, if you step away. If you walk away, if you leave the God you love, it says here, and this is amazing. I, it is impossible for you to be restored again to repentance. See the pastor here is saying, "Don't play with this." Impossible here can be soft pedaled. Some translations say very difficult. Um. Other translations say very unlikely. The word means impossible. In fact, what we find is just a few verses down in in verse 18 of chapter 6. Notice what it says. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is very difficult for God to lie. It It is very unlikely God would lie. What does that word mean? It means impossible. Now, is this speaking to God's power? I don't think so. I don't think this, this word here is speaking to the fact that God does not have the power to restore this person. Because he's the, he's the Almighty. Because in this particular verse, in verse 18 of chapter 6, it says that it's impossible for Him to lie. Does that mean He doesn't have the power to lie? No. I believe it means that he does not choose to do so. God is all-powerful, but he does not choose. He does not will to lie. I think that makes it even more pointed, does it not? This passage is saying that it's impossible for this person to be restored, meaning not that God can't in his power, but that God will not restore that person if they walk away, if they apostate. is impossible. So it's not that God lacks the power, but that he refuses to do so. He refuses to restore them again to repentance. Now, that can't be what it means. I mean, do you mean do you mean to tell me, Shane, that there's not there's there's people that can't come back to God? Chapter Hebrews chapter twelve. Same book, same pastor. You understand that I'm preaching this right now not because I like it, but because it's true. I mean, wh- where else do we go? Chapter 12, verse 15. Chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one in this congregation fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy. Notice this. Like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And all he did was sell a bowl of soup or get a bowl of soup for his birthright. Verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent. Now that, that's hard enough. But then it says, he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears you see how there's just no way I can get around this? Now, here's my dilemma for you, and specifically as a pastor. There are some here this morning that have tender consciences. Every sin, you immediately want to be overwhelmed by the fact that God has rejected you. And um, I, I don't know how I can best minister to you right now, because this passage is not for the tender conscience. This passage is for the one who seeks to walk away earnestly, continuously, desires to move away and step away from the church and stay that way. They've apostate. they've, They've gone away from the church and desire not to be a part of it anymore. That's what this sin is. And so it's been difficult this week to try to figure out, how do I not bruise the tender conscience and yet allow this text to weigh on those who are just... Absolutely convinced that I'm saved because of something that you've done, or that you you just you're able to pretend really well. So here we are. Another reason why I believe this is not of those who are genuinely saved, and then they come they 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 genuinely saved, and then they lose their salvation, is because every uh, uh, group that affirms um, that somebody can lose their salvation, and I'll speak specifically. Um, of, let's say, the, the Methodist Church or maybe the Assemblies of God Church, they believe you can lose your salvation, right? But what else do they believe? That you can come back just, just any time. And and if they go to this passage for that, th- they, they may want to affirm the fact that they you can, one can lose their salvation. But according to this passage, then what this passage is saying is they can't come back. Right. And every... My understanding of, of, of their doctrine, as I've actually read their tenets of faith this week, both the Assemblies of God and for the Methodist Church, United Methodist Church, is that they believe that someone, when they lose their salvation, they have the opportunity to come back to God. This text does not allow for that. So I believe here that these are false professors of faith. Why is it so severe? This is amazingly severe, isn't it? This is shocking. I mean, there's all kinds of buts that you want to put with this. There's all kinds of scenarios that are going through your mind of, well, what if, what if, what about this? Oh my, if that's true, then, I mean, all of that, I realize that. That's what went through my mind this week. Why is this so severe? They are not, God will not allow them to be restored again to repentance. Why? There's two reasons according to verse 6. Since they're crucifying once again the Son of God. That's the first reason. Now this is amazing that's this being said by this pastor. Because in this book alone, in, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus was offered up once for all. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, that He entered once for all into the holy places. It says in Hebrews nine twenty six that He has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Hebrews ten ten, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. This pastor harps on the fact that when Christ died, he did it once for all. And what he's saying here is that when one falls away from the faith, walks away from the faith, they are, according to this passage, crucifying once again the Son of God. In other words, they're mocking the very work of Christ. They're belittling it. They're reproaching it. They're reviling it. They're scolding it by their actions. They're saying that Christ isn't enough. That's why it's so severe. Don't mock the cross of Christ. The primary way of doing that is by being exposed to all these blessings and then disregarding it. Not not a savor that I desire to have a taste of. Not something I want. The second reason, it says, since they were crucifying once again the Son of God, and it says here, amazingly, to their own harm. That seems almost an understatement after the previous verse or previous uh, uh, phrase. And the second reason is because they're holding him up to contempt. In other words, though most do not understand this when they walk away from the faith, they're ridiculing the very Savior that God honors. You see, we don't often believe with all of our heart, and this is what we work on regularly, that Jesus Christ is sufficient and worthy and treasured and our joy, that He is enough, and that we can, if we fix our heart and attention upon Him, we will be pleased. We will be satisfied. We would have peace. We don't believe that. Now, the problem is this, is that God said... When Jesus was being baptized, he spoke and said, With him I am what? Well pleased. And we don't believe that. We don't believe that Christ is one who can please us, one who can satisfy us, one who can fill us, who, one who is, is and can be and will be our treasure, our joy, our all in all. When we are those who walk away from the faith, We are showing that Christ is valueless. We reproach his name and we reproach what he did. And in so doing, we cannot be restored to repentance. Those who do that. Second point, picture of falling away. And I told you this one would be shorter. A picture of falling away. Now, why would this pastor, after all of that, decide to give them an image because he, as he was preaching, probably saw in their eyes what I see in yours. And that is that is, there's got to be a loophole somewhere. There's got to be something different here than what's being said. Because that, number one, the people are unsure. We're not quite sure, are we? I mean, I've tried to make the case that these are uh, false professors within the congregation. But you can see where the other side would say these are genuine professors, right? These people are unsure. We also realize that the consequences are drastic, eternally drastic, shockingly drastic. So, wow, it's one thing to be unsure about the people. It's another thing to say that these people are going to never have the opportunity to be restored, that God is impossible. God is unwilling to restore them to repentance. And then thirdly, the harm is devastating. They are crucifying Christ again. They are, um, according to verse 6, holding Him up to contempt. Those are pretty strong words. So the pastor in this day, of the book of Hebrews, that wrote the book of Hebrews, and I want to clarify by using a picture, because pictures help clarify things. All right, If you're wondering if this pastor is saying that these people were blessed with things like being enlightened and tasted the heavenly gifts and shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They were blessed in all of those ways. They were surrounded by that. They were exposed by that. And yet they fell away in the midst of that. And they're not able to be restored. If that's what they're saying, then let me paint a picture here that may help you clarify that point and say, yep, this is what I'm saying right here. Look at verses 7 and 8. For... Here's my picture. Land that has drunk rain that often falls on it and produces crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Verse 8 But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned see, the picture matches the truth. The land is the church. He's saying the church is out there and, and these blessings are in the midst of the church. The, the rain is these blessings that's falling on the church. And, and while the ground is out there and there's nothing that's come up, the, rain, the Lord is, he, he brings rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? The just and the unjust. He's bringing these blessings upon all these people. How are you going to know who are true professors and who are not? By what comes out of the ground. You see, God's word goes out. And he's blessing these people as the land is receiving rain. And there are some who come up this crop which is useful. And it is for those whose sake it is cultivated. In other words, that's the reason why there's enlightenment and sharing of the Holy Spirit and the heavenly gift and the, and the goodness of the Word of God and the powers. This for those who are God's people. But take note, in that field, on that land, as the water falls, it not only, in the, this, this blessing that God gives in the bringing of the rain, according to verse, uh, verse 7, they, they receive a blessing from God. But... There are those who are, that bear thorns and thistles. In other words, weeds and worthless things come up in that same field. Those who aren't the ones whose sake is being cultivated for. They are worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. That sounds really familiar to the truth, doesn't it? So, the question then is is this. What were these people who were false professors missing? Now, this isn't right here. It's actually in the next verse. And we're going to get to it next week, but I want to start you off on this. What was it that these false professors, what were they missing? They were enlightened and trained. They were around those who were saved, tasted the heavenly gift. They shared in the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the sense that they were receiving benefits and influence of those who had received the Holy Spirit. They had tasted the Word of God and began applying it to their life. They understood the powers of the age to come. What was it that they were missing that caused them to be so tragically apostate? I want to bring up this Old Testament context again. Remember I told you at the beginning it's Old Testament context? In the Old Testament... God's people who came out of the land of Egypt. They had the Ten Commandments, didn't they? You think they were taught those? Probably so. They, they were taught those. In other words, they were enlightened in the Ten Commandments, in the law of God. Had they tasted the heavenly gift? Well, they came out of Egypt on the night of Passover when they heard the firstborn of all the Egyptians screaming, and the mothers of those firstborn screaming, because the firstborn were dead. They were delivered as God's people. They had, I believe, tasted the heavenly gift of deliverance. They were brought out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12. Had they shared in the Holy Spirit? Well, absolutely. It says in uh, Numbers chapter 14, Moses himself had the Holy Spirit upon him. And then when the elders came around Moses, it says, God says, I took my spirit from you and dispensed it among the other elders so that they can govern you. Was That body of believers that were wandering in the wilderness, were they under the influence and the power, and were they sharing in the work of the Holy Spirit among them? Absolutely. Had they tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come? They were told of the promised land. And according to Deuteronomy 31, the Word of God was read to them regularly. What happened to those people? They fell in the wilderness. They never came into the promised land. They never made it, according to our New Testament analogy, to heaven, to the place that they were supposed to be. Look, if you will, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16. Hebrews 3, 16 says this. Hebrews 3, 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom... Was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. Unbelief. Read on. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. What do these people who are apostate not have? the crucial ingredient. They did all of these things, folks. You may be here this morning and you may be one who has been trained and enlightened. You may have tasted the heavenly gift. You may have shared in the Holy Spirit. You may have have tasted in the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And you've never trusted Christ. And you will fall away unless you trust Christ today. So what are the evidences of a genuine faith? One who is growing by faith in your knowledge of the gospel. Not just growing in your knowledge of the gospel, but growing by faith in the knowledge of the gospel. That means being enlightened. Number two, receiving by faith the heavenly gift of Christ. Not just being around those who are saved and thinking it will rub off on you, but receiving by faith the heavenly gift of Christ, not just tasting the heavenly gift. Number three, bearing the faith, bearing by faith the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, living out, bearing, living, fruit, being fruitful in the fruits of the Spirit. Instead of simply sharing in the Holy Spirit, in other words, being recipients of those who have the Holy Spirit around you, bearing those fruits of the Spirit in your own life. And then fourthly, obeying by faith the Word of God and longing for His kingdom to come. You see, these are evidences of genuine Conversion. You see how you see how close they are to what we just looked at of the apostate? The difference is they were growing by faith. They were receiving by faith. They were bearing by faith. We are obeying by faith. And get this they're continuing. Continuing by faith in those things. Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible impossible to please him.